Welcome to the What Matters Today podcast from the Geneva Graduate Institute. I'm Dan Graham, Head of Communications at the Institute. In this podcast series, we ask members of our faculty to comment on key global issues. In today's episode, we unravel the intricate world of cybersecurity. We will delve into the various categories of hackers and explore the common cyber threats faced by nonprofits. We will also look into the ever-evolving role of artificial intelligence in both cyber attacks and defense. Stay tuned for insights into how AI is transforming the cybersecurity game and discover the best practices to fortify your digital defenses. Today's episode is hosted by Jérôme Zubidi, who is the managing director of the Tech Hub here at the Institute and is also an academic advisor for the Institute's executive education program. Jérôme's guest today is Adrian Oji, Chief Operations Officer at the Cyber Peace Institute. Thank you, Adrien, for being with us today. My first question uh, would be, tell us a little bit about yourself and about the Cyber Peace Institute. Hi, Jérôme. So um, I'm Adrian Orji. I'm the Chief Operations Officer of the Cyber Peace Institute. Uh, we are a nonprofit based here in Geneva that looks uh, after vulnerable communities online. We were set up in 2019. And since then, we've been um, trying to help local communities here in Geneva. Uh, we're actually releasing a report on the cybersecurity maturity of NGOs right here uh, in Geneva in the next few days. And also trying to provide concrete services to these vulnerable communities and try to raise awareness amongst decision makers on how people suffer because of cyber attacks and what needs to change. So we're a group of about 30 people with... Uh, technical, business, uh, NGO, and um, policy background, trying to provide very concrete assistance and at the same time learn from that to be able to provide recommendations on how to change the system so that those that are not protected today can also be protected. And just a few words about myself. So I'm, I'm the chief operations officer um, there. I've been in cybersecurity for almost two decades now. I'm getting, getting old. <laughs> Worked for the World Economic Forum before, helping them set up their center for cybersecurity. Before that, I was with the European Cybersecurity Agency based in, in Greece. I'm French originally, so also worked for the French Cybersecurity Agency <laughs> and uh, worked a little bit in the private sector in Brussels as well. So I've got a background in telecommunication engineering in global security and uh, recently graduated from a, a business school, did an MBA. So in what I do at the Institute, I try to bring all these aspects together, trying to help those that no one help, trying to provide them with value-add services for free, cybersecurity, which obviously poses a, a set of financial challenges. How do you provide costly services for free? Uh, so it's, um, it's an interesting challenge for us, for us to have, and we've come up with quite a few creative solutions. But um, yeah, that's, that's us. Thank you, Adrien. You're talking about solutions. Uh, my next question will be about cyber attacks and more precisely about the ones who conduct these cyber attacks. We talk about hackers. There are different colors, uh, white hat, black hat. Can you tell us a little bit about this hackers uh, group and, uh, and the difference between these different communities? Sure. So looking at the individual level first, there's different shades of, of hackers. And the word hacker actually has a negative connotation, but it's not necessarily 
associated with nefarious activities. White hat hackers or so-called ethical hackers are security researchers that follow the law and try to improve the defenses of vulnerable organizations. So there's the large majority of hackers in the world are white hat hackers and they're trying to do good. Now you have gray hat hackers, those who are sometimes abiding by, by the rules, sometimes going a little bit beyond because they think that the rules are not well made or because they're trying to go a little bit you know, further. And so those are playing with the boundaries of, of the law. And for sure you have black hat hackers, um, more often than not criminals who are after financial gain or data or espionage or a variety of other reasons um, who are definitely outside the boundaries of, of the law. Now, if you look at collectives of, of hackers, you'll obviously have collectives of um, white hat hackers, ethical hackers. And certainly at the Institute, we are, for the most part, well-versed in cybersecurity um, techniques. Um, we are not ourselves conducting attacks, but we use computers to do our work. So in a sense, we could be considered a collective of, of hacker. Um, nevertheless, we're not doing, any, not doing any harm. Now, you look at um, other groups, for instance, hacktivist collectives, Again, you have some hacktivist collectives that are trying to further political agendas that are abiding by the, by, the law, by the laws, by the rules. But you have hacktivist collectives that are also using computer techniques to do things they shouldn't. And so some hacktivist collectives, collectives bordering with terrorists, cyber terrorists, are definitely having a negative impact on the trust that people have in the internet and the basic safety of vulnerable communities online. Now, you also have groups that are motivated not by political gain, but by financial gain. So criminals, in particular organized criminals these days, um, have well developed their activities online. And so cyber criminals are very popular actor, very active actor on the internet. And they're stealing a lot of money, stealing a lot of data as well, trying to monetize it further. Maybe we can talk about ransomware attacks after. But criminal actors are certainly playing a big role in the instability of the internet today. Last but not least, you also have state-sponsored actors. So obviously you also have ethical hackers that are, you know, working for cybersecurity agencies and doing things by the book. Um, but you also have actors that are sponsored by states that are sometimes part of criminal groups or you know, close to criminal groups that are doing things that the governments should not be caught doing. And so they outsource some of these activities to cyber mercenaries when they want to be active in certain conflicts or when they want to steal particular pieces of information from other, other states or other actors. And in all of this, you'll also have corporate espionage actors. So those may be criminal groups that are more um, versed in going after companies and trying to, or companies or organizations and trying to steal information to bring that to their competitors. Um, and also, let's not forget insider threats. So people who are embedded in organizations and rebel against that organization for a variety of reasons, political, financial, and personal, um, personal reasons as well sometimes. So unfortunately, there's a variety of actors that um, do bad things online. So it, it requires um, quite a diverse set of um, mechanisms to defend against these. But um, the beauty in a way of the internet is also there's a huge diversity of actors is trying to do good. And so we can count on them to try and balance this out. Thank you, Adrien. When talking about attacks and, and what, are, what are the most 
frequent attacks against uh, non-profit organizations. You mentioned ransomware, for example. So indeed, ran ransomware is a very popular type of attack these days because it's really the easiest that criminals have found to monetize those attacks, right? If you think of attacks in the past, distributed denial of services, for instance, are annoying, right? When you're not able to access a website, it is annoying, but to convert that into cash for criminals is hard. Phishing attacks, which lead to the theft of protected information, again, you need to negotiate. It, it, it's, it's difficult. Uh, it's, it's been difficult for criminals to turn that into cash. But when they cripple an entire information system, they basically encrypt everything and paralyze an organization's ability to do anything, then, you know, e either these organizations feel that either they pay the ransom or there's, they just have to close, close shop. So unfortunately, this is a rising trend and the nonprofits are not safe from, from this trend. A couple of years ago, we, we thought that criminals would go after the wealthiest of organizations and would really focus on these. But for a number of reasons, they are also now targeting NGOs. So the first is that NGOs, by virtue of hopping on digital technologies, you know, they are all transforming digitally. Their beneficiaries are using smartphones. Their donors are asking them to be present on social media and whatnot. And so they end up connecting a lot of systems to the internet. And just by virtue of being connected and not having the ability to secure those connections, they open themselves up for these types of attacks. So there's a lot of criminals who are renting ransomware infrastructure from other more organized criminal groups, very much like you would rent a car or you would rent a service to sell some goods online. Well, some criminals rent from others the ransomware infrastructure and then go after any type of target that's connected and has a vulnerability that they can exploit. And unfortunately, NGOs have quite a few vulnerabilities on the systems they connect online and as a result end up um, in the criminal's net. So you would think that when criminals realize that they targeted a nonprofit that's running orphanages around the world or that's you know, trying to help in uh, humanitarian relief or demining, for instance, that they would you know, forget the ransom and say, sorry, you know, we're, we're, af we're after for-profit organizations. They don't. Um, we helped a nonprofit recently negotiate with a, with a criminal um, in the case of a ransomware attack. And the criminal said, oh, you're a nonprofit. Fantastic. Um, sorry, we didn't know. Uh, but don't worry, we've got a discount for you. So this means that nonprofits are legitimate targets now in the eyes of many criminals. And this is unfortunately a trend that we're seeing. So we're seeing more and more ransomware attacks against them. But NGOs and nonprofits, charities in general are not are targeted just by ransomware attacks. They're also targeted by spare phishing, which is, you know, phishing and attacks is still the number one vector of infection. So a lot of staff in nonprofits are not um, yet properly trained on cyber awareness. Typically here in Geneva, we run a study and about half of the nonprofits that we talked to had trained their staff on cybersecurity. Although they all, the majority of them, I think it's 85% of them recognize that cybersecurity is a huge risk to their organization. And as a result, you know, staff will click on an email that looks like it's coming from the CEO, but it's not, or they will end up clicking on the wrong link, downloading the wrong file, and basically open up their organization for uh, um, either malware infection, ransomware attack, or, or CEO fraud attack, uh, trying to impersonate the CEO to steal funds from them. So a variety of other attacks. 
We still see some DDoS attacks happening as well against nonprofits for political purposes. We definitely saw a little bit of that happening in the context of Ukraine, in the context of the conflict in Gaza. And um, there's also some more particular types of attacks that we've witnessed, notably here in Geneva. So a lot of nonprofits run events. Uh, they want to gather their community. They organize, you know, a big annual event to celebrate whatever they're doing. And as a result, they open up a web page, process registration. Sometimes there's registration fees associated with that. You have to process bank accounts. And so what criminals have realized is that these organizations seldom look for what's called typosquatted domains. It's essentially taking the domain name of that events page and replacing it with something that looks very similar. You know, there's a letter that changes or something that uh, basically that the criminals can control. Now, criminals are you know, professional enough now that they have their own certificates. So the, when you look at the little lock on your you know, browser, it looks like you know, it's a secure connection, HTTPS, so you know, it's a source of trust and then they're quite good at um, search engine optimization as well so turns out these pages often are better referenced than the original page so that you have a lot of participants that just google or oh, i want to go to the event of that nonprofit in geneva or somewhere else you click on the first link register put their bank account send the money and the money's gone so that's that's unfortunately something that's hard for um many nonprofits to to detect because it would mean to have you know professional services looking at the entirety of the uh, of the web to see if there's any domain that impersonates uh, theirs. CEO fraud attacks are also quite uh, popular, and social media account takeover as well quite popular. So a lot of these nonprofits use social media to communicate about their, their activities. Um, oftentimes, they don't secure those using multiple uh, multi-factor authentication. So they will share passwords with one another. Sometimes these passwords leak. Criminals find it, connect to Instagram, Facebook, whatever, change the password, and then ask the ask the nonprofit for ransom to take it back. If not, they suddenly start talking to the entire community, threaten the donors, you know, harm the trust that these nonprofits have built over decades. So it's it's quite frightening to see how you know such a small thing as your social media account can be leveraged to destroy something that you've taken generations to build. So this is symmetry between the resources of the attackers, uh, between the vulnerabilities that are opened up by all the technologies these NGOs use, uh, compared to the resources of the attackers, makes for an explosive situation. And in our industry, uh, Jerome, the, the, the biggest challenge that we face is sourcing talent. There's a massive shortage of cyber talent and NGOs struggle to pay the salaries that the private sector or even the public sector can pay. And as a result, they struggle to to hire talent. And without talent, it's a real difficulty for them to protect themselves. Thank you, Adrien. We're talking about technical vulnerabilities, but also human vulner vulnerabilities. We need both. No? When, when there is an, a cyber attack, you often have one or the other or both components. Yes. So there's um, an adage or saying in our industry that uh, humans are the weakest link. Um, I understand there's a part of truth to that because uh, we can 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 be fooled, um, I guess, more e sometimes more easily than, than machines. But it's also putting a burden on on staff that's sometimes unfair. So organizations have, in particular, NGOs, you know, corporations, governments, as well, like any organization that has digital technologies and has staff has a responsibility to train their staff and educate them so that they cannot be fooled. Um, so this mixture of, of um, this interplay of 
tech, digital technologies and human mistakes or digital vulnerabilities and human vulnerabilities is definitely what criminals and state actors try try to exploit. And if you know your defenses, technical defenses are really high, then they're going to try and find ways to come in through some of your staff members. So there's very many notable examples of you know advanced governments hacking very sophisticated and secure organizations leveraging human vulnerability because that's the only way they could get in right so in our walk uh, unfortunately we're playing both with organizations that are ill-equipped from a technical standpoint and who employ staff who is also seldom trained in those techniques so we have to find solutions to elevate both technical and human competence to help those organizations at least be above certain baseline and for sure you know be more se- more, more secure or have more obstacles than than the next target right if somebody else is easier to to hack into at least you're safe for a moment yeah thank you adrien we talk a lot about artificial intelligence at the moment do you think artificial intelligence uh, has changed anything when it comes to cybersecurity or cyber insecurity Definitely. Um, generative AI in particular, looking at large language models, is helping criminals produce malware much faster. They can write code, right? These tools, you can use them to program, to write code these days. So they're already using those to write codes. They're using AI to evade signature-based malware detection systems. So typical way for digital technologies or antivirus systems or, or, or such to detect the presence of malware is to look for signatures, or to look for the behavior of a particular piece of software. Now, it's costly and time-consuming for criminals to rewrite their code to evade those signatures. But by using neural networks and large language models, which are black boxes, right? You input something and something comes out. And if, you know, if you've played with AI, but when you ask something and next time you ask the same thing, you get a slightly different result, right? So by doing that, criminals are able to, to write code that slightly different each time, which allows them to be a lot, you know, to fare a lot better when it comes to evading signature, signature-based detection. Um, we've, I've heard also of examples of malware that directly use large language models in their operation, meaning that when they propagate themselves, they want to, you know, replicate themselves on a new machine, they will directly ask the large language model, for instance, ChatGPT or others, to rewrite the code in a different language and then propagate and rewrite it again in a different language. So every time the malware is propagating, it's rewriting itself which makes for you know quite a challenge if you're using humans mostly to detect that so um another yeah another way that ai has been used already i think for a few years now is to fool humans with even better techniques so i mentioned earlier ceo for the tax which revolve around inserting yourself in an email conversation, impersonating the CEO or the CFO and ordering one or the other to wire money to a bank account urgently, right? This is a scam that has worked for quite some years. So now we've trained people on double checking, using an out-of-band channel, you know, using Signal or WhatsApp or calling your CEO and say, hey, are you ordering this or it's not you? Right, so people are getting trained on that, but with their you know, what's what's difficult for them is if suddenly they're being called by their CEO on the phone and they hear the voice of the CEO, the CFO who says, hey, I need this transfer, like I just sent you an email, please do it now, you know, with the same accent, same intonation and everything, which is 
easy, unfortunately, to do these days with deep fakes. So you take the video of whoever you want to impersonate on YouTube, process that through a deep fake generator, and then you can make that deep fake say whatever you want. Now these tools have gone gotten even better, so you can do that in real time, meaning that you can have an actual conversation and pre-record some things and sound like a robot. Now you can have a human conversation with some someone impersonating uh, someone else. And the next frontier that we're hearing about already is doing that on video. So you'd have your CEO, CFO calling you on Zoom or Teams, and then you see the person, like it looks like you could touch them, and they're ordering you to wire some money. So. Now, if you put that in the context of the asymmetry I was telling you about earlier, the, the acceleration of, of attacks uh, for NGOs is, is frightening because even though cyber defenders have access to these technologies to improve their defenses, NGOs are not yet fully leveraging you know, digital technologies, basic te- digital technology basic cybersecurity technologies. And so they're far from leveraging powers of AI when it comes to increasing their defenses. So for a period of time, some attackers will, will have an edge going, going after these, these targets. So that's why we need to empower NGOs. We need to find solutions to help them. We need to have big cybersecurity companies trying to come up with offers that are accessible to those organizations. We need donors to do a lot more. We need governments to legislate, to empower those organizations like they're empowering critical infrastructure operators. So there's a number of things that need to happen so that we don't, you know, leave these people on the side of the road. Thank you, Adrien. Um, so basically, if I'm a nonprofit yeah. and I don't know much about cybersecurity, I come to you, what is the, the action plan and what are the maybe the best practices you would recommend me to implement? So... The first thing that I would say is let's have you hop on our Cyber Peace Builders program, which is a program that matches you as a nonprofit to cybersecurity experts, all coming from the private sector who volunteer their time to help you. We at the Institute will help you scope your needs. We'll create short mission descriptions of you know one to four hours so that volunteers can look at that and say, all right, I have a little bit of time next week to help Jerome's NGO understand better what multi-factor authentication is and how I can implement it or DMARC or um, to prevent you know, phishing uh, emails or, or, or other technical or non-technical activities that you would want to implement. That's the first thing that I would say. Now, for your, those of you who are listening, if there are a couple of you know, top tips um, at organizational level, try and look at NIST, try and look NIST framework, the National I think it's Institute for Security Technology in the US. Look at what documentations ENISA in Europe are producing or depending on which country you're based in, look at the national uh, documentation. But they give guidelines for corporations, for SMEs that are pretty much the same for NGOs, right? We all use the same system. You should all use the same security mechanisms. Now, there's a couple of, obviously, a big control in terms of maintaining your stack up to date, patching your vulnerabilities, making sure that you, know, you have a patch management program in place. That's obvious. Train your staff, educate your workforce, make sure that they know how to detect a phishing attack, which is still the number one faction vector. Ensure that you've got multi-factor authentication activated on all of your accounts, all of your platforms. This is the easiest way to deter criminals. It's so difficult these days for them to get in when MFA is activated. Even if passwords are bad, if you've got MFA activated, it makes it so much more difficult. 
obviously good password hygiene is critical. So we always say, you know, have passwords of 20,000 characters with weird things that no one can remember. No, easiest is think of a passphrase. So think of a sentence that you would say, you know, like the weather is really beautiful in Geneva in March, or this chair is blue and I like it. And then you put an exclamation dot or an interrogation mark or something in the middle to make it a little bit more complex. But if you look at the entropy of that, that sentence, it would take centuries to crack. And if you use a complex password, you know, with weird things, you're going to, you're going to forget it. And, and maybe the entropy is actually not much bigger than just a long password. It's actually easy to type. If you know how to type on a keyboard, sentence can be typed fast. Um, the other advice when it comes to password management is stop trying to have thousands of different passwords that you're going to end up reusing left and right on social media and then on critical information systems inside your organization. Use a password safe. So there's, there's um, software today that work well, well protected for the most part, who will manage your complex passwords for you. So you don't have to remember any of them. You just have to remember one, which is the password that you use to get into that safe. Make it long, make it complex, you know, make it a big sentence. Don't share it with anyone. Don't write it anywhere. Don't communicate it ever. Even if someone's asking for it, do not. Your boss doesn't need to know your password. And if for whatever reason you end up having to share that with somebody you absolutely trust, change your password before, share it for a second, and then change it back. But don't share a password, right? Um, so use saves much, much easier passphrases as well. And then the last piece of advice is we're human beings. We live in an offline world, right? Even though the internet has been around for a while and it's eating too much of our time, you know, consider what sounds legit and sounds illegitimate. When you get a weird request from your superior, from a colleague, a friend, some prince in a foreign country offering you millions of dollars, think of it in the offline world. Would that happen? Would that happen? Or does this sound like a scam? If it sounds like a scam, it probably is. And even if it's not, if you don't act upon it, somebody will come back offline, back at you and say, hey, sent you this thing, like, can we talk about it? And then you can have confirmation that this is real, right? So this is my most basic advice. I think a lot of people just forget about following is, if it's weird, it probably is. So, you know, don't do anything. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adrien. Very helpful. It was a pleasure having you as with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Jerome. This podcast series is produced by the Geneva Graduate Institute Communications team. For more information about the Institute, please visit our website at graduateinstitute.ch. I'm Dan Graham. Thanks for listening.